Welcome to the Harmony of Interest series, where we will explore ideas that positively shape our world. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer for Empathy Media Lab that publishes content on labor, political economy, art, and culture. And we are a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. I'm very excited to talk to Madison Zerwinski, executive director at Campaign for a Green Nuclear Deal. Madison, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. So I want to begin by asking you, about your background and how you became interested in nuclear energy. Right. Um, so in school, I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison and I was studying environmental sciences and political science. And during my three years there, I basically went back and forth between which sort of advocacy space I really wanted to be involved on, or in. So on the one hand, climate change and environmental degradation. As an environmental sciences major, I knew how important that was and really wanted to start a career in developing environmental policy, but also human development. You know that there are over a billion people still in dire poverty. And I really wanted to focus my efforts on how we can best lift developing countries out of poverty into more prosperous living. And, you know, through my undergraduate career, these things really felt like an either or and two very distinct pathways. And then I remember I saw Pandora's Promise and started watching some of the TED Talks of Michael Schellenberger and discovered nuclear energy as a solution both to climate change and alleviating poverty. And it just was like a puzzle piece clicking into place where I knew that this was the intersection of these issues I cared deeply about and that um, it wasn't being pursued as the keystone solution that I thought it was and that that was really gonna be the focus of at least my career, you know, straight out of college, but now I feel pretty confident in saying my life or until we see these big changes that I'm envisioning. Uh, yeah, I spent some time in Zambia and Southern Africa as a Peace Corps volunteer, and I really saw what it was like to live completely off grid, no running water, no electricity, uh, people cooking over an open fire. And the poverty was just so extreme. When I came back to the US after that, I mean, it just completely changed the way I looked at infrastructure and what people around the world want is modernity. And I sometimes see just this push to you know, have this appropriate technology. Let's give them wood burning stoves. And it's like, no, let's give them what everything that we want and expect in our lives, we should, every human being should have that um, available. And that, that, that point where you said, you kind of shifted from it being one or the other to saying that we can have both modernity and clean energy at the same time. And then having that shift and click was, is, um, you know, I kind of went through the same period. And now also Schellenberger to his credit, I, I watched some Ted talks as well, I don't know, long time ago. That really kind of changed my mind as well. And you, you were at environmental progress for a little while. Yeah. So I actually uh, left school and went to work, for Michael at Environmental Progress, and then just left last year when I decided to found the campaign for a green nuclear deal. 
So that's perfect to lead into the next question. What is the campaign for a green nuclear deal? Right. So the green nuclear deal is a plan for growing nuclear energy as a way to create good, high paying jobs, to reestablish American industrial capability, and then to reestablish the U.S. as a leader of this critical technology, a technology that we, you know, created essentially. So the campaign for a green nuclear deal is the advocacy effort that is going to articulate and build consensus around this new vision for nuclear energy. And so our work involves organizing and campaigning at the state level while also building support nationally to get our target is 50% of our electricity coming from nuclear by 2050. We can do it. I, I mean, yeah. I, I think we could do it a lot more, but it, at the minimum, let's get there. Um, right. and, and, you know, it sounds a little bit under ambitious, but when you see the state that the industry is in right now, you know, any, any expert will tell you that that's far more ambitious than you know, unambitious. Yeah, I would like to remind anyone in the audience though that de Gaulle during his building in France in the 60s and 70s, within 20 years, he was able to establish France with 70%, I think, or more uh, dependent on the, the nuclear economy of electricity and then all of their electric trains and all their additional infrastructure that was built around it. And it, it was only 20 years. And this was with technology over 50, 60 years ago. So it, it's um, it's within our grasp. It, it's more of a political will and you know the campaign of what you're working on as well. Also, I'm a huge um, FDR New Deal fan. I think you know there's major problems with the New Deal on the fact that uh, the Jim Crow Democrats were restricting parts of it. But overall, the idea of using the government to fill that that area where the the private sector can't deliver and cannot organize itself for the general welfare and it being jobs, infrastructure, financing, uh, research and development, and all of these other spinoffs that, that come from these investments. Um, I'm, I'm very excited about it. And the Green New Deal, as it came out, I think in 2017, um, it, at first it, it was, um, it, it, it wasn't very pro-nuclear from my understanding. So I do like the idea of doing this, bringing in nuclear as a big part of um, th this movement for like a nuclear economy, atomic economy. So I read your essay that you published on Medium called Campaign for a Green Nuclear Deal, Forging a New America. And I, I was struck by the way that you begin the essay, focusing on economic inequality and the decrease in union membership. So I do a lot of work with the Labor Radio Podcast Network, and we're always promoting workers' rights and the dignity of work and trying to figure out how we can make sure everyone has a job. So why did you begin your essay with this focus? Right. Well, you know, I think sometimes people can be so focused on the climate and climate targets that they often forget about society. For example, what's going to happen to the coal-dependent communities in Appalachia? during a clean energy transition? 
what about the 10,000 union jobs that were just lost as a result of the cancellation of the Keystone Pipeline extension? You know, we should be making sure that we're taking into consideration these like union high paying jobs. Beyond that, making electricity expensive is extremely regressive and disproportionately hurts poor people. So how can we make sure that our transition is keeping energy cheap and is progressive and equitable. So I think it's really important to ensure that social welfare is given proper consideration in our climate policy proposals. And, you know, unions specifically, they're not the political power brokers that they once were, but they continue to make an essential contribution to American society. You know, unions emanate stability. They often provide wages high enough to raise children on. They fight for schedules and better hours that allow people to spend more time at home or in their communities or in their social groups. So I think that, you know, unions specifically make for good society. And I think it's just important to me and and to this campaign that unions and organized labor have the seat at the table that they deserve in these negotiations and are a priority of any clean jobs program. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I see unions as actually being democracy at the workplace. It's where you have a voice. So it's a means to enhance democracy by bringing it into the workplace. And then also the ends of like actually getting a, a greater piece of the fruits of one's labor, um, you know, that where they're generating value on, on the floor and in the production house uh, so often gets a, taken away from the people on the top. And so I think it's just more equitable distribution. I also love the fact in this essay too, that you focus on almost the political economy of nuclear energy and the fact that it's not just about electricity, it's about restarting our entire manufacturing process to be able to build the materials that maybe we don't even have the capability anymore. Maybe we've lost that in with deindustrialization and the offshoring of a lot of our manufacturing and, and being able to bring that back so that we can build our own units and then export that as well, which can also help with trade imbalances and things like that. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the nuclear economy that, um, that, that everyone could benefit from. Right, yeah. So there are a lot of people, you know, that have already been communicating the incredible benefits of nuclear power. They're basically, these plants are basically immortal. Wherever they exist, the quality of life improves and they create abundant, reliable, cheap electricity without having to compromise on climate or the environment. And all of that is really great. For me, the key um, to this campaign is that nuclear requires a strong workforce and a certain level of manufacturing in such that the industry exhibits path dependence. Basically, this just means that nuclear makes it easy to develop other advantageous industries and grow the economy. So that's existing at the macro level, at the level of the nuclear sector, but also nuclear creates path dependence at the 
micro or municipal level. So think about the ecosystem of unions that attach themselves to the plant and the communities that get to house these plants. Um, you know, nuclear plants are valuable economic endeavors in the long run because they raise the economic level of the entire community that they're in. You know, and as I mentioned before, um, cheap electricity benefits the poorest, the poorest among us. That's because people um, who have poor people tend to spend a greater share of their income on electricity because you can't just decide that you're not going to use it. Um, so the long story short of the political economy of nuclear is that pursuing nuclear unleashes a chain reaction of wealth generation throughout society. And that's sort of the key message that we're building this campaign around, that nuclear should be the sustainable heart of a new industrial policy for America because it opens the door to all of these other industries, manufacturing and economic opportunities for a clean energy, prosperous future. And it helps with our com con like competitiveness uh, in the global market as well. The, the higher the cost of our electricity, the more expensive the products we make. So it will also be on the consumer side when we turn the electricity on, but anything we make here, um, you look at California having blackouts right now after closing down a couple of nuclear plants like San Luis Obispo and Diablo Canyon and uh, a couple other ones, I guess you're, you're definitely more familiar with it than I am. And California has a huge industrial manufacturing sector and they have to be wondering like, maybe we should leave here because we don't have a consistent form of electricity that we can depend on and, and costs have gone up tremendously in California. Meanwhile, China is building tons of coal plants. They're also building tons of nuclear plants. Their electricity costs are going down and they're already producing, you know, almost 50% of the world's like manufacturing. And so it, it's maybe, maybe that number is a little high, but I, I am um, really interested on that, that side as well. Right. And, you know, now the Public Utilities Commission in California is starting to allow diesel generators to be put online as backup. And it just feels like, you know, we're backsliding on climate progress while two gigawatts of reliable baseload carbon free electricity is going to be shut down by 2025. You know, it's just hard to reconcile that with their commitment to climate. So another aspect is the foreign policy uh, implications of nuclear. Uh, could you talk a bit about how the nuclear sector has a role in generating long-term alliances and maybe do a little bit of a scene setter of where the United States is in uh, competition with China and Russia? Right. Well. Like you said, it's obvious that the US has allies. So I think the question is, what are we going to do for them? And just in general, how do we move the world in a more prosperous, peaceful direction? Um, certainly not by building any more military bases, but perhaps 
by helping others walk towards a greener, higher energy future. Um, many countries that are pursuing nuclear for energy independence or development won't have the industrial capabilities to pursue nuclear buildouts alone. And we should really be there for those collaborations and to offer cooperation. Um, as you said, Russia and China already have admirable export industries. I think something like two thirds of the nuclear exports that are gonna come online by 2025 will be from Russia and China. Um, and I think it's only, or most of that export um, capacity is made up by two or three standardized national light water reactor designs. Um, so pursuing a green nuclear deal as I've outlined that focuses on bringing nuclear to other countries would necessarily put us in competition with Russia and China. But I think that can be a good thing, particularly for the technology. A, it gets the world electrified and um, helps combat climate change. But B, we know that competitive global markets can help with deployment, innovation, um, development of advanced fuels and technologies. Um, and I just see no reason why it shouldn't be American industry, American manufacturing, American jobs that are delivering on the economic and environmental benefits of nuclear worldwide. I think it should be us. And these nuclear plants, you know, have 50 to 100 year life spans. And so if uh, China's building a plant here, they may be locking in a 50 to 100 year partnership deal with that country and oh, fuel supply and everyone knows the more you build of like one model the, and you scale that up, you can lower the costs. Right. Uh, and speaking of costs, looking internationally, you see South Korea building nuclear under budget and on time. So my next question is when you're confronted with people who are anti-nuclear, uh, the general the reasons are, you know, cost, the amount of time it takes to build, and then, of course, the danger side of things, the so-called threat of uh, the Chernobyl, Fukushima, or Three Mile Island are usually the three um, accidents that people talk about. And then, you know, the question about the so-called waste of nuclear fuel. Uh, how do you respond uh, when someone comes and says, well, I don't like nuclear for any one of those variety of reasons? Right. Well, we're very lucky in that, you know, there are lots of organizations and educators and initiatives that are working to debunk exactly all of those arguments that you just described. I think the one that we have to engage with most often, you know, as a policy organization is that it's too expensive and too difficult to deploy. And as you pointed out, that's just ahistoric. Um, France's large light water reactor build out was able to decarbonize and they're still benefiting from 
one of the cleanest grids in the European Union, getting over 70% of their electricity from nuclear decades later. Um, there is nothing inherent in the technology that means it will be too expensive or take too long. It's advice that, you know, is applicable to many technologies and industries where, you know, it just, you get better once you do it more and you gain tacit knowledge and you find ways to become more efficient um, and you get the benefits of economies of scale. And so, yeah, I think it's bad faith to say because the two reactors in Georgia that will be coming online this year and next because they were not on time and they were over budget that that can never be the case. You know, our nuclear fleet is basically at risk of becoming like Roman concrete where the plants that we have can run as long as we allow them to, but we're gonna lose the knowledge and capability and competency to build them again. And frankly, I think that's what's reflected in the cost overruns and time overruns from Vogel. Um, as for the safety, as for, you know, a lot, the waste issue, um, like I said, there are a lot of public engagement and education groups and resources that we can point folks to. So, you know, at a personal level, I'm always going to be having those conversations. Um, but from an organizational standpoint, it's really quite useful to have those allies to be able to have that network to point people to experts so that we are not constantly relitigating um, these sort of tired arguments, but we can engage with the good faith actors and those who are genuinely curious through our network. Yeah. And I always like to bring up this idea that the United States had in the 70s, these um, breeder reactors that you could actually recycle the fuel. And that was shut down by Carter in the 70s. You know, we've had this technology and now they're bringing it back up um, at the Idaho National Labs and rebuilding this capability. But the, the waste is a blessing when it has, you know, over 90% of the fuel left in it, you know, you can bring it back. And well, this is the best part about it. It's the selling point of nuclear, you know, it's the best from an environmental standpoint and that it can be safely contained unlike, you know, emissions from fossil fuels. Um, we have a way that we store it and keep it safe on site. Currently, you know, different generation technologies, including solar wind batteries, we don't have waste management for them yet. So they end up in the natural environment. Because of the energy density of uranium, there's just so little of it. So yeah, for me, when I talk to people interested in climate change and the environment and feeling like they can't accept nuclear because of the waste, that's always the most exciting part for me is to spin that narrative on its head and show them that that's truly the environmental selling point of the technology. And it has such an incredible small footprint on land use compared to you know, a huge field of solar panels or, or wind turbines. 
and it has a very limited you know waste stream as well compared to Absolutely. other things and I, I'm not against wind and solar um, but at the utility level you know I'm, I'm fine with um, solar panels on you know if I want to put some in my backyard or if I'm off grid or something like that but I, I think there's no better technology um, that's been proven over the last 70 years. And uh, so I'm, I'm really, really excited, really bullish about nuclear and will continue to be. And how do you see kind of the, this new generation coming up, viewing it like with your peers and how they look at climate change and uh, technology like nuclear? Yeah, well, I think one of the benefits of re-examining nuclear now is that we're, you know, folks my age um, didn't grow up in the Cold War. So we don't have that same, you know, subconscious or even conscious fear of nuclear, which is understandable back then. But now, you know, a lot of young people see our generation's existential threat as climate and really want to do what they can to decarbonize and make sure that we are leaving a good world behind for our children and grandchildren. So I do notice that people that I talk to um, are very open to nuclear in general. I think um, the challenge becomes describing the need for nuclear when a lot of what they hear is that we can power society from wind and solar alone. And like you said, I'm not against the technology. I think that um, the evidence is clear that they can contribute to our electricity system, but only a certain percent. You know, if they might make up 20% of our electricity needs before it starts impacting the grid. So having to explain what nuclear does that is so special and why we need it is really more of the focus of conversation rather than is nuclear good or bad? Like is nuclear okay? Yeah. And I, I know there's this huge like Twitter war of like, let's be all like kumbaya about the every technology versus um, fundamentalists or just we have to use this technology. Uh, but I, I do think it's always important to lay out the fact that, you know, the solar panels mostly are coming from China. They're mostly being manufactured and fabricated with coal technology. And they also require tremendous amount of fracking natural gas backup so that when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing, you have the ability to ramp up uh, quickly with these jet turbines that use uh, very fuel efficient, um, you know, methane gas. And, but that, that comes at a huge cost as well. So I, I think it's always important to weigh all these things and, and just have a very informed conversation on it as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason to be dogmatic about it. At the same time, um, you know, there are opportunity costs. There's a limited amount of capital, political will, time, attention. And so I think making the comparisons between generation technologies and then deciding how much of our efforts and that capital we can distribute to pursuing each of those is an important conversation to have. Yeah. 
So looking ahead, uh, we have a new administration and for the first time in over 40 years, the Democratic Party has allowed nuclear to finally be an option, um, you know, going back to the country's 1950s policy of Adams for Peace. And where do you see some opportunities or what, what is your organization looking at the Biden administration and, and trying to figure out ways to potentially have some leverage or influence points that um, people can get behind? Sure. Well, you know, we're not exactly sure yet. Um, right now, the Biden administration is very busy, pull, you know, attempting to pull us out of the coronavirus. Um, and I think that relief packages that they negotiate and how to really um, kind of take us out of this global pandemic is obviously going to be priority number one and take up a good chunk of this year. Um, when the conversation does shift to infrastructure or clean energy, we would love to have a seat at the table. But Right now, it's unclear how we would influence their vision for a climate plan because we're not exactly sure what it is. Um, in reading the Build Back Better plan, I feel like there are a lot of ambitious goals and targets and not a lot of concrete policy steps. And a little bit like it's trying to be all things to all people. So I'm hoping that we'll get some clarity on specific policy initiatives in the coming months. In the meantime, we're just going to continue to campaign and organize at the state level. Um, things are pretty dire in Illinois right now. We have two plants that are in total 4.1 gigawatts of clean electricity on the chopping block this year. And really, unless action is taken this spring, we will lose them and potentially two more. Um, in California, Diablo Canyon is still shut or set to close in 2024 and 2025. So until we have some more clarity on the status of clean energy policy at the federal level, we're gonna continue to build union relationships, political relationships, organize, in these states where nuclear plants are at risk of premature closure. And I think that's going to help us achieve that long-term goal of building consensus around a federal policy agenda for nuclear. So in closing, looking into the future, what are you most optimistic about? Well, I'm actually optimistic about a couple of things. Um, first of all, I, you know, I just said the situation is dire. The stakes are high, but I am optimistic about saving these plants. Um, it's been absolutely incredible and really heartening to see the way that communities are coming together and fighting for their nuclear plants and reaching out to their state legislators on behalf of the workers. Um, you know, I just got off a call with the superintendent of the Byron School District and um, their communities have already have, you know, a number of virtual events coming on for the spring. We're organizing um, American Nuclear Society students at 
the Urbana-Champaign campus who are mobilizing to get the word out and educate the public. You know, I, I do think that these plants have a future. Um, beyond that, you know, the NRC has accepted a license extension application from Point Beach nuclear plant in Wisconsin, which is where I grew up. Um, so it's so awesome to see these plants, you know, operating well beyond the life that um, they were thought to have had. And again, I see no reason why they can't continue to provide a backbone for our clean electricity economy for decades in the future. And then lastly, Vogel Unit 3 is still scheduled to come online at the end of this year and then um, Unit 4 in 2022. And so that was a very long process for a time there was a lot of uncertainty on whether it would get done or not, um, if the project would be completed. And now that it's coming online, it's gonna provide Georgia and that part of the country clean electricity for generations to come. And I think that's really inspiring and you know, keeps us going at the campaign.